Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. I got to tell you, I have had quite a week, uh, particularly because I try to see at least, at least three movies for every show. And to be honest with you, this week, I fell short of that. One of the movies that I'm going to be reviewing for you is brand new. The other set of movies is a series of short subjects, which are nominated for Oscars. And I'm going to review those later on in the show, but that's it in terms of reviews for this show, regretfully. It probably would have been more if I didn't lose power at my my building last night, or rather uh, yesterday afternoon. But I did. The power is still off in my building. But fortunately, it's not off at the radio station where I normally record this show and do my broadcasts. And I'm crossing my fingers and hoping that the power doesn't go out. Otherwise, my show, as you're listening to it, is ruined. But let me get into the movies that I did review for you for this show. And next week, I'm actually not going to exactly be reviewing films for you. Uh, Next week is going to be my pre-Oscar show, where I give you the nominees in the various categories, as well as who I think will win, who I think should win, who shouldn't be nominated, who should have been nominated, and so on and so forth. But first, let me get into my newest film, or rather not my newest film, but the newest film that I'm going to be reviewing for you for this show. The first movie that I will be reviewing for you is Creed 3, which hit theaters on March 3rd, 2023. It's the third movie in the Creed franchise, which is a spinoff of the Rocky franchise, and it came out on 3323. Could it have waited 10 years and been released on 3333? Maybe, but I actually think that, you know, (laughs) striking while the iron's hot like they did was a good move. And it turns out that this movie is probably the best one to be released this year so far. And in the film, we are reintroduced to Adonis Creed, who is, when when we first uh, see him in this film, he's fighting his last fight and tad bit of a spoiler alert, he wins. And he also retires. And rather than fighting full-time as a heavyweight champion, he runs the gym in Los Angeles that's named after him. Now, a lot of Rocky and Creed fans will notice that one of the principal people in the Rocky-slash-Creed franchise is missing from this film, specifically... Sylvester Stallone. This is the very first film in the Rocky cinematic universe where Sylvester Stallone is not reprising his role as Rocky Balboa. And there is a long story, and a lot of it involves hearsay, as to why Sylvester Stallone did not reprise his role as Rocky Balboa. But Rocky Balboa is in Philadelphia, and Adonis Creed has settled down in... Uh, Los Angeles, and this movie takes place almost entirely in Los Angeles, where he is living with 
his wife, Bianca, who's reprised in this movie by Tessa Thompson, his deaf daughter and precocious daughter, Amara, who's played by Mila Davis-Kent, and also his mother, Marianne, Apollo Creed's uh, wife, played by Felicia Rashad, reprising her role from the previous two Creed films. And things are going well with them until somebody from Adonis Creed's past by the name of Damian Anderson shows up. And Damian Anderson in this movie is played by Jonathan Majors, who is already having a great year as an actor. And to be frank, I had never heard, or rather, I wasn't particularly familiar with Jonathan Majors before this year, but before he was in Creed 3, right before, just a couple of weeks ago, he played the role of Kang the Conqueror in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania in his, fir- in his debut in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But as some of the post credit scenes revealed in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, it's the first time we see Kang the Conqueror, It's not going to be the last time. And in that movie, Jonathan Majors played a great bad guy. In this film, he's not so much a bad guy as much as he is, at first, um, a confidant uh, for Adonis Creed. But as the movie progresses and as Damian Anderson reveals his ambitions to become the next heavyweight champion of the world... He becomes more of an adversary for Adonis Creed as well as the people who made Adonis Creed the heavyweight champion he ultimately became. And there are a lot of underhanded things that Damian Anderson does to become or to get that title shot to go basically right to the top. And at first you're on Damian Anderson's side. After all, he was imprisoned for 18 years and you got to admire his ambition at first, but the tactics he creates to get to that title shot, make him more and more of an adversary for Adonis Creed and his circle of confidants. And there are a lot of things that happen, which ultimately force Adonis Creed to put back on the boxing gloves, go right back into training, and take the heavyweight championship title away from his former friend, Damian Anderson. Now, in reality, somebody who retires when they're on top, who goes right back into the sport, usually doesn't work out very well for them. Muhammad Ali is probably one of the best examples, and to a lesser extent, great athletes like Michael Jordan and Tom Brady, who came back after retirement and had somewhat of a lackluster performance when they returned to the sport. But in this film, based on the things that the character Damian Anderson does, even though I think in reality you probably wouldn't be on Adonis Creed's side if he decided to go back into the ring, I think the circumstances in this film make it all the more worthwhile to see Adonis Creed put back on those boxing gloves. And the movie actually takes you on such an emotional, dramatic ride that you kind of forget that Rocky Balboa was Adonis's mentor in the first two films. And I hope that Sylvester Stallone returns as Rocky Balboa. His absence is not explained, but I think it would be in a later film. But 
This movie is noteworthy not only for being the third Creed film and hopefully not the last based on the power punch that it gives you, but it is also the directorial debut of Michael B. Jordan. Now, the first film, the first Creed film, was directed by Ryan Coogler. The second film was directed by Steve Cappell Jr. And Michael B. Jordan has some very big directorial shoes to fill in addition to playing the lead role. And not every actor who becomes a director who directs themselves in a movie always does a particularly good job, regardless of whether or not they're unknown or if they're well-established as an actor. But I was very, very impressed by Michael B. Jordan, both in his directorial skills in this film as well as his acting. I think Creed Three is probably his best acting performance to date. And that's saying a lot considering that I don't think I've seen Michael B. Jordan act poorly in a film or for that matter, a TV show to date. But in Creed Three, and it's not just in the boxing ring, he acts incredibly well, especially when certain things happen to people that are very close to him in his life. And I'm not going to reveal what happens, but there are some there is one person in this film who dies, and when this person goes out, in a sense, and I'm not going to reveal who, who this person is, that person turns in a great acting performance, and Michael B. Jordan acts incredibly well alongside this person as this person takes their last breath. And that's all I'm going to say about Creed 3. It is quite the ride. It is certainly much better than a lot of films in their third installment, particularly those that run out of gas as they're progressing. And it gives me a lot of hope for the fourth Creed movie. And as a matter of fact, before I give you my rating of Creed 3, according to my scale, I will say that there was speculation that Creed 3 would be about Adonis Creed fighting the son of Clubber Lang, who, if you know your Rocky history, if you've seen the Rocky films, you know that Clubber Lang was the adversary for Rocky Balboa in the in Rocky 3. And as great as it would be to see Mr. T return to the big screen, and it would be very interesting to see who plays Clubber Lang's son in a future installment, I think it was actually wise that the writers, Keegan Kugler and Zach Balin, went with a different sort of rival for Adonis Creed than Rocky Balboa fought. Because I do think that Creed three, or rather the Creed franchise, if they had gone the way of Creed, uh, Adonis Creed fighting Clubber Lang's son, I think it would have been following in the footsteps of Rocky Balboa, which I think would have made the franchise very stale and predictable. So I'm glad they actually dropped that subplot and actually come to think of it. If they were to make a fourth film and they did, have Clubber Lang's son come in to be a rival, that might set Creed on the wrong path. I'm glad they took the story that they did. This has phenomenal direction by Michael B. Jordan, a great performance as Adonis Creed by Michael B. Jordan, and a nearly flawless trilogy so far. There probably will be a fourth installment, maybe even a fifth installment, but I think that the movie franchise that's a spinoff of the Rocky franchise is off to an incredible 
momentous start right now, which is why I give Creed 3 my rating of a very unexpected but still very un, uh, very enthusiastic knockout. Michael B. Jordan is amazing in this film. Jonathan Majors plays another great adversary in this movie, and there's also great performances as always by Tessa Thompson and Felicia Rashad, who did who both did a really good job in the first two Creed films, and they reprised their role very well in Creed Three, and also some noteworthy supporting performances by the likes of. Wood Harris, who plays Tony Little Duke Burton, Adonis Creed's trainer, as well as Jose Benavides and Salinas Levia, in addition to other people. But Creed Three is definitely well worth the watch, and it's the first film to come out in 2023 that has truly lived up to its hype. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. I only reviewed one feature film for you for this show, and that's mainly because Creed 3 was the biggest feature film to come out this week. Plus, I lost power in my building, so I wasn't able to see any new films from Netflix, Hulu, or any of the other major streaming services. And I'm very sorry about that, but I did get to see a collection of the Oscar nominees for Best Documentary Short Film, and I'm going to be reviewing those five short films for you right now. And it's it's interesting because probably the best documentary short films of the cluster of short films that are a nominated for Oscars and B released in the art house theaters every year. The best documentary short films are probably the least popular. The most popular are undoubtedly the animated films. And for very good reason, even though the animated films are not necessarily amusing or entertaining, I mean, they they usually are very, uh, they're always great, because if they weren't great, they wouldn't be nominated for Oscars, probably. But with documentaries, it's still very intriguing to watch. And I think when people do give them a chance, they will be intrigued by them. And I think the cluster or the roster of the nominees for best documentary short film this year are certainly no exception. So just like last week, when I reviewed the nominees for best documentary, excuse me, best animated short film and best live action short film, just like last week, I'm going to review these First by my least favorite and then adding or rather working my way up to my most favorite and what, in my opinion, should win the Oscar for best documentary short film. And it's very tough to do because these five films are great. If I were to rate them, I'd give all five of them knockouts, probably maybe give one of them checkout perhaps, but either way, if they weren't great, they wouldn't be nominated for Oscars. And I've rarely seen 
a, a short film in any category that to me would have been overrated. But anyway, I'm going to start with number five, probably my least favorite of the best. And I'm not saying that this film shouldn't be nominated. I'm just saying that of the best of the best, it's just the least of the best. So number five in my list of Oscar nominated short films that were nominated for Oscars is a film that's called Hall Out. And this is a film that they say is a UK production, but it is actually written, if you want to call a documentary feature written, directed and produced by a brother and sister duo by the name of Maxim Arbogav and Evgenia Arbogav. And forgive me if I mispronounced uh, their names. They are Russian names. And I presume that Maxim and Evgenia are Russian, not British. But when I actually clicked on their Wikipedia pages, their, their Wikipedia page is written entirely in Russian. And I didn't have time to even have my server translate them. But in, in any event, Hallout is a documentary about a Russian scientist, a marine biologist specifically, by the name of Maxim Chakilev, who observes the life of walruses at... Cape Hearthstone in the uh, Chukchi Sea. And for those of you who aren't quite familiar, the Chukchi Sea is the sea that lies between uh, the furthest point west of, excuse me, the furthest point east of Russia and the furthest point west of Alaska. And this marine biologist, um, Mr. Uh, Chakilev, lives a very uh, solitary life. And I I loved how this film was shot. As a matter of fact, it looked less like a documentary and more like an actual feature film. But but you're wondering, as you're seeing him in in this shack with presumably no electricity, why is he just staying there by himself? And then... As the movie progresses, you see a lot more walruses and you learn eventually that he is studying these walruses, but the movie doesn't tell you exactly what his job is and to whom he reports and why he's studying walruses until the very end. And the written epilogue at the very end is not only very well written, but it also kind of hits you like a gut punch when you realize why there are so many walruses in this cape, why they're all gathered together, and what the consequences of these walruses all migrating together would be. And it's a lot darker than at first it meets the eye. Because at first, when you see all these walruses, first of all, you're amazed that there are literally thousands of them. And you also feel like, Maxim Chakilev is much less alone, but the movie is darker than that in a way that I won't exactly reveal, but I will say it does have to do with climate change. And that's why the written epilogue at the end is a gut punch. It's an excellent documentary and one that's filmed very well, but the reason it's number five on my list, one of the weaknesses I thought was it was very long and very uh, drawn out, or at least it felt very long and had a running time of 25 minutes. But I think when put together with the cluster of documentary films, uh, which 
altogether adds up to almost three hours. It just felt probably the draggiest of the five, but that is not to say it is a bad film. It's just the one that I think is the least likely to win the Oscar for best documentary short subject. So that is number five on the list. Number four for my most favorite Oscar nominees for best documentary short subject is the Martha Mitchell effect. And the Martha Mitchell effect is a historical documentary that is produced and directed by Joshua, excuse me, Beth Levinson and Anne Alvergu. And the Martha Mitchell effect is is a movie or rather a, a short documentary that is actually a Netflix original. It premiered on the platform on June 17th, 2022. So you can go on Netflix and see it now, but it tells you through archival footage and there's no narration, but there is uh, some written prologues and epilogues for this. It is centered around Watergate whistleblower, Martha Mitchell. And Martha Mitchell was a very outspoken woman who eventually became at first an ally for the Nixon administration. But then after Watergate happened, she became an adversary for President Nixon, as well as um, somewhat of a thorn on the side of her husband, John Mitchell, who was the United States Attorney General under President Richard Nixon during his first term in office. And Martha Mitchell was one hell of a woman. In fact, she was probably, um, in fact, she was definitely unlike any other wife of a, a, a politician or any member of the Nixon administration in that she did not sit quietly and she rarely ever pulled any punches, which is to say that I think anyone who is not a Republican who sees this film is going to absolutely love it. And there are things that have changed significantly since the late 1960s and early 1970s in Washington, D.C., particularly in the White House and the Capitol building. But there are other things that have not changed. As a matter of fact, probably one of the funniest things that Martha Mitchell says, and this is in 1974 after Nixon became the first and so far the only president to resign from office. She actually said, this will probably teach politicians not to be corrupt. And Martha Mitchell actually died a few years later, but um, if she could only see how politics progressed in the next 50 years, that's all I have to say about that because I could go on a tangent. Martha Mitchell is fascinating. The Martha Mitchell effect, I think, is so good a short uh, documentary that I would not be surprised if there was a movie made about Martha Mitchell. And I could see somebody like Jessica Chastain or Amy Poehler playing Martha Mitchell in a film. I think there was one film, there's only one film where Martha Mitchell was played by another actress. In other words, where... Martha Mitchell was dramatized, and that was in the 1995 film Nixon, 
which was directed by Oliver Stone. And in that movie, Martha Mitchell was played by Madeline Kahn, which was a great casting choice. Unfortunately, Madeline Kahn died 24 years ago, so uh, uh, she unfortunately can't reprise that role. But The Martha Mitchell Effect is an excellent documentary. I, I can't even really say that there are a ton of weaknesses to it. I just think compared to the other three documentary short subjects that I'm about to reveal to you, it probably suffers in comparison, but I did love this film and I do highly recommend it if you have a Netflix account and are able to see it. My number three most loved documentary short subject in the Oscar nominated category is how do you measure a year? And this is a film that was filmed over the course of 16 years. And this is probably the easiest accessible documentary in the sense that it was just filmed using a camera you could probably get at Best Buy and the director of the film, Jay Rosenblatt, probably did. What he did, Jay Rosenblatt, was he filmed his daughter, Ella Rosenblatt, from the time she was three to the time she was 18, every year on her birthday. And you see Ella Rosenblatt when she's three years old. She's very talkative. She's very gregarious and precocious. And the, the movie has Jay Rosenblatt, while his daughter Ella is on camera, asking her the same questions every year. And some of these questions include ones you might expect when you're interviewing a child, like what do you want to be when you grow up? But then some other ones that are a bit more thought-provoking, like, for example, what is power? And I think all the responses that Ella Rosenblatt gives, regardless of her age, are very poignant and, yeah, very thought-provoking even when they come from a child who doesn't really uh, know any better. The title of the film, How Do You Measure a Year, is a line from the song Seasons of Love, which was from the 1996 Pulitzer Prize-winning musical Rent. And that's one of the songs that Ella Rosenblatt, who was, and I'm not sure if she still is, an aspiring singer actually sings in the documentary. And this movie, I think I would compare favorably to Richard Linklater's film Boyhood. But unlike Boyhood, this is actually real footage of a woman growing up literally before our eyes. And I think by the time she gets to the age of 11, you can see the dark clouds of adolescence circling above her. But it's still very fascinating to hear her answers and also to see her grow up. And if the other two documentary films that were nominated in this category weren't so great, How Do You Measure a Year, which was the first film that I saw, would probably be number one. I still love this film, but it's not my favorite. So moving on to my number two most favorite of the Academy Award nominees for Best Documentary Short Subject. The number two film, in my opinion, is... Stranger at the Gate. This is a film that is a documentary film about, or obviously, because that's the category. It's directed by Josh Seftel, and it is about an Afghan refugee by the name of Bibi Baremi and the members of his little Indiana mosque who come face-to-face with an Afghanistan veteran by the name of Richard Mac McKinney, 
who was in the Marine Corps for 18 years, and he had a plan because of post-traumatic stress disorder as well as his, at first, myopic view of uh, people who are Muslims. He had a plan one time to bomb the community center in the small town of Muskie, Indiana. But what happens when he shows up to the community center and the mosque is very powerful. And I, I want to tell you what happens. And I've seen Richard McKinney on the news as well as the other people in this Indiana mosque, all the members of it who do follow Muhammad. And it made me, it certainly struck a chord in terms of familiarity because I've seen these people on the news before, but the documentary told me more than the news story actually did. And I, I want to say that I saw this news story on 60 minutes, but I don't know for sure if it was on 60 minutes, it might've been on 48 hours or some other news show. I don't remember, but stranger at the gate made the story stick in my mind. And it just shows you the healing power of the human spirits. And maybe I'm giving away what happens at the end, but either way, it it's a film that's brought to you by the New Yorker. And I believe you can see it in its entirety on YouTube. If you don't get to see it in theaters. So now for my number one pick for best documentary short subject of the year. And I think this is the one that's going to win my number one pick of the nominees for best documentary short subject is the elephant whisperers. This is a 2022 Indian American short documentary film. That's directed by documentary filmmaker Kartiki Gonzalez in believe it or not, his directorial debut. And what's fascinating about Mr. Gonzalez in his directorial debut is this movie is expertly shot. This is also a Netflix original. It premiered on the platform on December 8th, 2022. And I really wish that there was some way that I could know about some of these short subjects because Netflix has a wide variety of fantastic short films, including some that were not nominated for best documentary. I'm getting off topic here, but the reason, or let me tell you a little bit more about what the elephant whispers is about. It is about human beings who bond with elephants in, um, Western India. And you are introduced to an indigenous couple by the name of Beaumont and belly who live off the land and they are entrusted with orphaned elephants. And the movie does not exactly tell you why these elephants are orphaned, but if you believe in climate change, as you should, the effects of climate change on the lives of these elephants that are native to India are implied, but not told or it is shown, I think, but definitely implied, but certainly not told. And this short film, I believe, is the longest of the nominees for 
short film. It runs as a total running time of 39 minutes, but the filming uh, of this movie is absolutely fantastic. In other words, the cinematography, the, the things that they do, not only with high def cameras, but also with drone shots make this film and its subject come to life. And it also creates great characters out of the indigenous people who are raising the elephants as well as the elephants themselves. And there are certain plot developments here that not only make you really care for the character, the people, as well as the animals in this film, but it also takes you on a journey that may even change your way of thinking. So there's more I want to say about The Elephant Whisperers, but that's why it is my number one pick and the film that I will probably believe will be the winner for Best Documentary Feature. So The Elephant Whisperers is my number one pick for Best Documentary Short Subject. Number two on my list is Stranger at the Gate. Number three is How Do You Measure a Year. Number four is The Martha Mitchell Effect. And number five is... Haul out. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of March 6th through March 10th, 2023. And there are a lot more new films that are going to be released in theaters this week as opposed to last week where Creed 3 was the primary film to be released in theaters. There were other films that were subject to being released in theaters, but Creed 3 was the film that got the widest distribution. So if you live in Montana and you have, it, you have a multiplex that is near you that only shows maybe three movies if you're lucky, chances are Creed 3 probably hit that theater. But regardless, anyway, um, I'm not necessarily saying that a movie theater near you that has three theaters is going to push Creed 3 out. Creed 3 will probably be in theaters for a little while, probably longer than you might think. But I guess that's another story for another time. But there is one film that is going that is subject to being released on theater in theaters on March 6th, uh, 2023. Oh my gosh. I almost said 1923. No. The movie is called Hevelin Edge. And this is a film that does not have a plot. It is directed by Joa Jordan and stars Amita Suman, Ever Anderson, and Sam Strike. No actors that I know of, but I'm seeing some shots of the preview and I'm going to click past that because I do not watch previews. I avoid them like the plague. It certainly has a really interesting title and the category or the genre under which it is, is fantasy. So 
it looks like an interesting film, but I'm not counting on this coming to a theater near me. And I'm not saying you shouldn't count on it, but I'm just saying realistically, if it's coming out on a Monday, it doesn't have a poster attached to it, and it doesn't have a plot, chances are it's going to be in very limited release and maybe on streaming. But I'll keep an eye out for it, and if I see it, I'll review it for you on a future show. On March 10th, 2023, there are several new movies that are going to be coming out into theaters or subject to being released in theaters. One of them is Scream 6. And anytime I've told people that Scream 6 is coming out in theaters, they all kind of react the same way. When are they going to stop making those? And Scream, or rather the last Scream movie, which should have been called Scream 5, but it wasn't, it was called Scream, made my list of the worst films, in my opinion, of 2022. And I don't know why they're making a Scream 6 film. I think it's probably contractual obligation. And there are a number of people who are reprising their roles from the previous films. Of the people who are reprising their roles from the first three Scream movies, there's only one that I can see, and that is Courtney Cox, who is reprising her role as the ambitious-to-a-fault reporter Gail Weathers, who later became a best-selling author. But there are other actors, some very good actors, who are appearing in this film. There's Jenna Ortega, who is probably best known now for playing Wednesday Adams in the hit Netflix series Wednesday, which I want to see, but I haven't actually, I'm probably the only person on the planet that has not seen that show yet. But because it is a TV series and not a movie, I don't review it on the show. And I primarily make it a mission to see movies, which consequently means that I don't watch very much television these days or any TV series, including those on streaming platforms like Netflix and Hulu, to which I actually have a subscription. I just don't have time. But other actors in Scream 6 include Melissa Barrera, Jasmine Savoy Brown, Hayden Panettiere, Mason Gooding, and Devin Nicota, amongst others. So Scream 6 is a movie that I will see. But I doubt I will like it because I think this is just going to be a retread of either the first Scream movie or the first two Scream movies, both of which were excellent for their time. And I think they still kind of stand the test of time, albeit a lot has changed in life as well as in high school since 1996 and 1997. But Scream 6 is a movie that I will see. I will review it for you on a future show, but I doubt I'm going to love it. There is another movie that's going to be premiering in theaters this uh, March 10th, 2023. And it's a movie that stars Adam Driver. It is an action-adventure drama. And Adam Driver chooses his films very carefully. He has not made a misstep yet. Or at least if he's been in a bad movie, he himself hasn't acted poorly in it. But... For that reason, I'm kind of excited to see this film. And the movie is called 65. I don't know why it's called 65, but it's from the writers of A Quiet Place, and it's directed by Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who also wrote A Quiet Place. But it's a movie about an astronaut who crash lands on a mysterious planet only to discover he's not alone. 
And the movie also co-stars, uh, it actually doesn't co-star very many people. It co-stars uh, Ariana Greenblatt, Chloe Coleman, Nika King, and Brian Dare. Actually, Brian Dare provides his voice. So there really are only four human actors in this film, which might lead you to believe that when Adam Driver's character is not alone, he's basically on a planet with other creatures that are not humans, presumably. But 65 is a movie that will I will likely see, and I will review it for you on a future show. It's just not going to be next week's show, because next week I'm going to dedicate my show to the Oscar nominees, and I, I'll explain this a little bit later on the show, but regardless, the point is that 65 is a movie I, I will see, but I won't necessarily review it for you on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on March 10th is a movie that's called Champions. And this is a movie starring Woody Harrelson. And he actually made an appearance on SNL to promote the film. And he also was interviewed on CBS Sunday Morning to promote the film as well. But more people are talking about Woody Harrelson's monologue on SNL and things he controversially alluded to rather than this movie. But the movie is about a former minor league basketball coach who was ordered by the court to manage a team of players with intellectual disabilities. He soon realizes that despite his doubts, together this team can go further than they ever imagined. And the movie is directed by Bobby Farrelly, who is one of the two directors of films like Dumb and Dumber, There's Something About Mary, and Osmosis Jones, amongst other films. He's not directing this film with Peter Farrelly, interestingly enough. And I don't know why they're not directing the film together, but the movie actually looks a lot more serious in tone than some of the other films that the Farrelly brothers directed that I mentioned. But one common theme you'll see in films by the Farrelly brothers is they usually have supporting people in the film who have disabilities, either physical or intellectual disabilities. And to the Farrelly brothers' credit, they don't make fun of these characters for their physical or intellectual disabilities. And that is a revelation. And I, I don't know exactly why Peter and Bobby Farrelly uh, include people with physical or intellectual disabilities in their films, but they do make them human characters, and I do absolutely applaud them for that. And Champions is certainly putting them in the forefront, as opposed to other films where they had either appearances or minor supporting roles. But Champions is a film that I also look more forward to seeing than Scream 6. And it's a film that I will see, and I will review it for you on a future show.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. There are a number of films that are going to be released or subject to being released in theaters on March 10th, 2023. Before the break, I mentioned three of them, but there are actually a lot more. And I I, I will probably uh, give them to you, but I unfortunately, by telling you what these other movies are, it's going to cut into the films that are subject to being released on streaming platforms as well. But let me continue on with this list. So in addition to Scream 6, 65, and Champions, there are other films that are subject to being released in theaters on March 10th. The three films that I just gave you a synopsis of are films that are likely to be released in theaters near you. These other films, I'm not quite so sure. But there's one film that's called Luther, The Fallen Son, and this is based on a hit BBC show starring Idris Elba, who reprises his role in this show as John Luther. And John Luther is a brilliant but disgraced detective who, in this film, breaks out of prison to hunt down a sadistic serial killer who is terrorizing London. The movie is written by Neil Cross, who wrote the BBC television series, which is a huge hit across the pond, but it also has a very big following here in the United States and Canada as well. But in addition to Idris Elba reprising the role that made him famous, Cynthia Erivo is also in this film, as well as Andy Serkis. So this looks like a film with a great cast, and it's directed by Jamie Payne. And Jamie Payne is a director whose name I'm not entirely familiar with, but he has had an extensive career directing TV shows, uh, particularly British TV shows. He's directed two episodes of the new version of Doctor Who. He's also directed episodes of other shows, including Luther. And Luther, uh, from what I gather, is a show that ran on the BBC for a very long time, from 2010 to 2019. It, it was one of the reasons that Idris Elba became a household name. And even though I have not personally seen an episode of Luther, even if this film was not based on a TV show, it seems to have a premise that's intriguing enough so that somebody who's not familiar with the show, like me, could probably watch it and still be intrigued by it. So Luther, The Fallen Son is a film that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on a future show. Is it coming to a theater near you? I can't guarantee it, but chances are it probably will. If not, it will be released on streaming because Luther has that big a following. But anyway, some of the other films that are subject to being released in theaters on March 10th, 2023, include a film called The Ritual Killer. And this movie, I can already tell, has a great cast. It stars Cole Hauser, Morgan Freeman, and Muriel Hillier. And it's a film about a detective on the verge of retirement who teams with a professor of African studies to track down a serial killer who's performing the ancient black magic practice of Mooty. I don't know what that practice is, and I, uh, I'm i still intrigued. And even though Morgan Freeman has been in some bad films over the last 10 years, all but one of them he's been good in. And Cole Hauser is 
an actor with whom I'm vaguely familiar. Some of his best, or rather his um, best-known films over the last few decades include Dazed and Confused and Goodwill Hunting. He's also been in some more commercial films like Too Fast, Too Furious. So this is a film that I don't know if I'm going to see, but it looks very intriguing, and the fact that Morgan Freeman is in it as an African studies professor makes me want to see it even more. But I can't guarantee that I'm going to see the film, but if I do, I'll review it on a future show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters on March 10th, 2023, include a movie called The Magic Flute which is a movie about a 17-year-old by the name of Tim Walker as he travels from London to the Australian Alps to attend the legendary Mozart boarding school. There, he discovers a centuries-old forgotten passageway into the fantastic world of Mozart's The Magic Flute. So it's not really a film that's based directly on Mozart's opera, but it certainly has the opera as a major plot point. The movie, ironically enough, stars F. Murray Abraham, whose best-known role is as the guy who indirectly killed Mozart, uh, Antonio Salieri. And Antonio Salieri did not actually kill Mozart in reality, but according to the movie Amadeus, he did. But F. Murray Abraham in this movie is probably a direct reference as well as probably an indirect tribute to the 1984 film that was absolutely amazing and still stands the test of time today. But the movie also co-stars Ewan Rio, Jean Gossard, Amir Wilson, Jack Wolf, and Steffi Selma, amongst other people. I don't know if this is a film that's going to be coming out in a theater near me, but if it does, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. There's another feature documentary that is going to be released in theaters or a subject to being released in theaters on March 10th. And the movie is called I Got a Monster. And the movie is about something that happens in March of 2017 where America's deadliest city, which I presume is Chicago, but the, the synopsis here isn't telling me. But anyway, America's deadly city in March of 2017 was rocked by one of the nation's biggest police corruption scandals. Local hero and cage-fighting super cop Wayne Jenkins, and remember this is a documentary, not a feature film, was federally indicted on racketeering charges along with six other members of Baltimore's elite gun trace task force. Okay, the, the deadliest city is Baltimore, not Chicago. My mistake. In a city stoked with racial tension and violence, Jenkins and his crew of plainclothes detectives were celebrated for holding the thin blue line. But they were actually terrorizing the city's black community, working with a coke-dealing bail bondsman to steal and redistribute millions of dollars of drugs while blazonly planting evidence and falsifying police reports to frame their targets for crimes they didn't commit. Now, the summary does go on, but that tells you just about enough to make you want to see the film, or at least maybe I'm speaking personally, but man, that sounds amazing. And this is a documentary, so these things actually happen. That's amazing. But I Got a Monster is a film that I hope comes out in a theater near me. I'm not counting on it, but I'm going to look out for this film. And maybe I won't review it the weekend after it comes out, but my God, 
I would far rather see this documentary than, than I would Scream 6. But there is one other film that is subject to being released in theaters on March 10th, and that film is called Saturday Afternoon. And Saturday Afternoon is actually a foreign film that is directed by Mustafa Sarwar Farouki. And Mr. Farouki is a native of Bangladesh, as you might presume from hearing the name. Actually, I kind of presumed that he would be Indian, but no. Bangladesh, still um, Southeast Asia. But this movie, which is called Saturday Afternoon in English, is about an unprecedented terrorist attack that takes place in a peaceful cafe in the center of Dhaka, which is the capital of Bangladesh, on a nice Saturday afternoon. The terrorists use religion to divide and kill people, while the surviving hostages, all of them also Muslims, try to defend their own humanistic values. The film unravels the clashes and contradictions of religion, ideology, and civilizations through a terror drama shot in a single take. Wow, that sounds incredible. I can't exactly tell you the names of the actors. I have the actors' names in front of me, but they are... Very long names, and they're names that I don't recognize, so I'm going to spare you that. But the plot of the film already kind of sells itself, it seems. Amazingly enough, even though this sounds like a true story, it is actually a work of fiction. And it's gotten great reviews from the American uh, reviewers who have seen it so far. And it's all the more ironic that I Got a Monster is a documentary and Saturday Afternoon is a dramatized fictional film because I Got a Monster sounds too outlandish to be true and Saturday Afternoon sounds almost too awful to be untrue. But these are films that are unlikely to be released in the theater near you, but if I, if I see these films, if I get the opportunity to see them, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke. And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.